Welcome to Constitutionally Speaking, a podcast about the United States Constitution, early American history, and political philosophy. My name is Jay Cost, and with me, as always, is my fantastic co-host, Luke Thompson. And this week, we are going to continue our discussion of the historical Congress. Just to give you a sense of our direction here, Luke and I have been spending the last couple of weeks talking about the change of Congress as an institution through time. We've almost come to the conclusion of this part of our series on Congress. And then after that, we're going to begin looking at individual aspects of contemporary congressional institutions, like the committee system. the party system. We're going to look at um, House procedure, Senate procedure, how differences between the two chambers are resolved in legislation, congressional oversight, things like that. We thought it was important before we get to the mechanics of the contemporary Congress, though, to sort of give you a flavor for how Congress has evolved. And that's been this subject of the last couple episodes. And today we are looking at Congress in the wake of the Watergate scandal. And, and Luke, you had some really insightful points last week about how in the wake of Watergate, which really begin, and Watergate in many respects is a capstone to really, I would say, eight, nine years of very almost supercilious presidential governance where the president has been, you know, not just the center of American political life, but the president has been lying to the American people and lying to Congress. And, you know, Nixon obviously is the one who falls because of that. Um, but the the fact of the matter is, is that the Johnson administration had been lying to Congress for quite some time about the nature of America's involvement in Vietnam. It was the phrase that was coined during the Johnson administration was the credibility gap. And so finally, you see, you know, and it it's not just Johnson and Nixon, it's also Spiro Agnew as well. And there's just this sense of the executive branch has gotten in over its head or maybe just enough is enough, I would say. Yeah, I, I think that's right. So to, to sort of zoom out, um, you know, we come out of World War II and we enter the early Cold War with what might be called a kind of presidentialist consensus, right? That the, the federal government of the United States is and ought to be run through the White House. A lot of different rationales are offered for this. Um, you know, chief among them being, especially after the Soviet Union acquires the atomic bomb, the need for speed, so to speak, celerity, whatever you want to say, in in response to global threats under the conditions of potential nuclear annihilation. Um, that presidential consensus is always threatened by events, right? Um, you know, it it wobbles after. Truman seizes the steel mills and the Supreme Court smacks him down with Youngstown. It wobbles during McCarthyism. It wobbles when, um, you know, uh, the, the sort of more isolationist Republicans led by Bob Taft in, in Ohio, in Ohio, try to push the Bricker Amendment. Um, it, it wobbles during the Bay of Pigs and during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But it survives. And so the mainstream consensus, both on the right and on the left, especially on the left, but to some extent also on the right, is that presidents ought to be the leading force in national government. 
that consensus is just founders on Vietnam and, you know, breaks apart, splits in half and sinks on Watergate. Um, the reason is that it demonstrates these, these series of events demonstrate not just that presidents can make mistakes. People understood that, but actually that the president's ambitions and political self-interest did not necessarily align with the national interest. That may seem obvious and to us today, but it was not always obvious. And indeed, it's, a, it's, it's not hopelessly naive. After all, a president wanting to get reelected ought in the minds of many people to do a good job as president, that if you do a good job presidenting, you'll get another term. This is not a stupid or naive view at all, right? Um, you know, that, that, that if you deliver policy goods, that the economy is growing, that national security seems to be in a good place, you'll get reelected. There's good empirical reason to believe that being a good president, that is to say serving the national interest, also serves an incumbent president's political interest. Watergate and Vietnam call all of that into question, not only because we see presidents behave badly as individuals, but also because we see presidents pursuing their political interest at the expense of what most people see as the national interest. However, uh, even though in the wake leading up to the Nixon resignation and in the wake of it, we see a period of congressional assertiveness where Congress kind of comes back into the fore and attempts to you know, rejigger the interbranch relations of, um, of, the, of the federal government through something that you know, I, I've called framework statutes. statutes. Um, those, those statutes fail, and the presidency reasserts itself in rapid order with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. Yeah, it's interesting that Carter ends up kind of getting caught Yes. In the crosshairs uh, in, uh, of congressional reassertiveness. And it, Carter's difficult presidency um, is worth commenting on for a moment. I mean, Carter, in the conservative Republican imagination, Carter is often recalled as the bumbling liberal foil to Ronald Reagan. Feckless would be the sort of the word that people use all the time. Feckless would be the word that is used. And there are good reasons for that in the sense of Carter's lack of capacity as a chief executive. Um, Carter was too moralistic, I would say, as as a chief executive. He was... um, too much you know, micromanager. The, yeah, he was a he was a micromanager. He didn't have a good sense of things. He he had this um, bad habit of assuming that he was America's pastor. I think in a lot of respects. Mm-hmm. So the so-called Malays speech was actually kind of a speech in which Carter wanted to take the concrete problems that America was was having and suggest that there was a greater crisis of spirit in the United States, which I think is fair. I think it, mm-hmm. on the merits, it was a fair diagnosis of the national consciousness, but it was also completely inept in the sense that the country was going through continued economic hardship, and it's not the job of the president to be America's pastor. He, Jimmy, you know, that should have been left to Billy Graham, not to Jimmy Carter. But I and and obviously the the fiasco of the Iran Contra situation 
reinforce the idea the, the, of the, the Iranian hostage. Yeah, hostage. thank you. The the Iranian yeah the Iranian hostage crisis, but I but beyond that, there's a, there's a few sort of points that make Carter a more interesting multi-dimensional president than the typical narrative often looks at. For for one thing, it's it's really fascinating that Jimmy Carter is the first Southerner to come into the White House through election since, um, I would say, Zachary Taylor. I mean, unless you count Wilson. <laughs> unless, yeah, unless you count Wilson, which I guess you could, but Wilson was also, you know, almost a subterranean Southerner, I would say. Right. right? Wilson was, you know, Wilson's reputation politically, he was from New Jersey. A crypto confederate. Yeah, he was a crypto confederate. Carter is really interesting in that respect. Um, And he and he runs for the White House. A guy like Carter would not get elected to the presidency if it were not for Watergate. He runs as an honest guy, um, a plain dealer, plain spoken. You know, the fact that he was known as Jimmy as opposed to James was itself significant. And he and he wins election in 1976 very narrowly with a very peculiar coalition. I think the only state in the West that he won was actually Hawaii, and it ends up being an incredibly close election. Um, but what is also interesting about him is where he is situated in the Democratic Party. So in the Democratic Party. In 1976, there's really no liberal icon running. Ted Kennedy was still tainted by Chappaquiddick. He probably would have won the nomination in 76 if he had not, you know, if the whole Chappaquiddick thing hadn't happened. Um, And you get this weird situation in which there's really no liberal frontrunner. You have guys like Morris Udall, who's a liberal from New Mexico. And then you also have George Wallace running. In 1976, Wallace having run in 68, Wallace is running again. And Carter does this really interesting thing where he positions himself to the right of guys like Mo Udall in the north and then positions himself to the left of Wallace in the south because Wallace wasn't didn't really have any pool in the south. And so Carter has almost this kind of Goldilocks trajectory where he just kind of slips through right in the middle of the party. 1976. Problem that Carter runs into when he becomes president is that on a congressional level, this is not where the party is. The Democratic Party had been, and we had talked about this in previous episodes, the Democratic Party had been a kind of a two-headed hydra, for lack of a better phrase. You know, you had this coalition of Southern Democrats, and then you had who were more conservative and then more liberal Northern Democrats, which had been, certainly had been the case during the FDR's administration and had continued in many respects to be the case. However, you see these wave elections in 1958, 1968, 1964, excuse me, 58, 64, and then 1974, where Democrats expand their majority very fabulously. And Wave elections being what they are, you know, the subsequent year, there would be some receding. But the accretion of these, you know, not all of the seats get lost. Many of them are retained. And so the Democratic Party's position 
in the North is growing stronger, particularly after the 74 election, which brings in very young, reform-minded liberals. Like a good example of somebody brought in in 74 would actually be Henry Waxman, who was until a couple years ago, a major player in Democratic Party politics. Exactly what I was going to say. He's sort of the quintessential Watergate baby. Yeah, there is a real thing about that. And so Carter comes in. A guy like Henry Waxman is not going to be on the same page as a guy like Jimmy Carter. And Carter finds himself time and time again struggling uh, to enact anything approaching his legislative agenda because, frankly, he's to the right of Congress. So, for instance, Carter wants to reform welfare which sounds really great. But Carter's idea was to reform welfare without spending any more money, um, which is not what the liberals want to do. And in fact, you know, as inflation increases throughout the latter half of the 1970s, particularly in the second half of Carter's term, he gets into fights with Democrats like Ted Kennedy over hospital spending. Carter, you know, by this point, Medicare is such a large program that it's basically entangled itself up in the medical spending. And, you know, Carter wants to reel in government spending on things like hospitals because inflation is getting very, very large, out of control inflation almost. And I mean, Paul Volcker, who was instrumental in, you know, getting inflation tamed and back under control during the Reagan administration was actually appointed the, you know, um, chairman of the federal reserve. He was actually appointed by Carter. So Carter ends up getting into a lot of trouble here with um, not just the liberals. And I think this is, I think the main point is that he's getting in trouble precisely because this model of presidential governance has broken down, at least in the Democratic Party. He's a new guy. He's an outsider. He doesn't have, you know, he's not a northerner and he's not a liberal. And so what you end up seeing is that despite these very large majorities that the Democrats enjoy in both chambers of Congress, during the 1970s, Carter is really unable to do anything. And as Luke indicated, it's not until Reagan that you see a kind of recovery of presidential governance, the likes of which we probably hadn't seen. You know, we saw it briefly during LB, the first half of LBJ's tenure, probably up through 66, but at which point Vietnam reports from Vietnam were really bad. So there was a brief sort of spell of that in 66. So it had been by that point you know, 15 years since we saw, we've seen a president actually in control of the national agenda in many respects. Yeah, I mean, it's especially interesting because if you look at the first Nixon term, it's extremely productive from a legislative standpoint, right? I mean, a lot of conservatives don't like what's produced out of there, but you have a, a mostly Democratic Congress and a Republican president, you know, producing major programs. And Carter, interestingly, is a super productive legislator. It's just, they're, it's all chicken feed. Mm-hmm. Right. So so he tries to put an ambitious national agenda together. He can't get his own party wrapped around it. And so instead they do lots and lots of little stuff. Mm-hmm. And so on, on the one hand, you might say, well, that's totally unfair to view Carter as feckless then. And, and like, yeah, it is kind of unfair. But it's also fair that if I say, you know, um, I'm going to come out here and reform, you know, the national health care system, and then I wind up passing a law to, I don't know, appropriate one hot air balloon per state, you might say, uh, that's great that you pass that law, but 
what the hell is it, right? There, it's a question of legitimacy. And it's, this is where Carter runs into trouble is he can legislate, but he can't legitimate his legislation. Um, and he finds himself, interestingly, both on questions of foreign policy and domestic policy, boxed in by these framework statutes uh, that I mentioned, right? So they, they run the gamut from the War Powers Resolution to the Ethics and Government Act to the, to the Anti-Impoundment Act. All of these things, This and this, by the way, this is the era that produces the myth of the co-equal branches of Congress and the executive. Um, let me, I'll just give a quick history about, about that from the Nixon and Ford period, and then we'll jump forward into, into, um, you know, into the sort of the difficulty that, that, that Carter has. So um, as I mentioned in the last episode, Nixon winds up getting impeached ostensibly because of Watergate, but the political fuel for the fire that gets him impeached is, is driven by his refusal to spend money legislated by Congress, even over even with veto overrides over his, over his veto pen, by abusing the impoundment power. Congress then takes that impoundment power away from the presidency. Um, additionally, his decision to bomb Cambodia unilaterally, um, this leads to Congress uh, drafting different iterations of and ultimately passing the War Powers Resolution. Wasn't the Cambodia bombing one of the articles of impeachment that the left wanted to pass? I, you know, right. I, I, it was definitely on the table. I don't, yeah, know, they didn't, I don't know where it wasn't the one of died. them, but that was one. Yeah. I think it died in committee, but yeah. The, well, I mean, look, the, the Cambodia, the Cambodia bombing takes a protest, a popular protest movement, youth protest movement that's dying out and just yeah. dumps gasoline. on It, it really so, does. You know, people go from thinking, okay, you know, in 1970, 71, you have just massive domestic terrorism going where anti-war radicals are blowing up cars and i mean it's it's you know they're they're setting off pipe bombs in university buildings and setting things on fire i mean you're you've got an incident of uh, there's there's you know multiple instances of political violence in the united states every single day yeah in like 1971 and 1972 by the time nixon is getting impeached in the summer of 74 that's gone way, way down, or that had been on a downhill trajectory until the bombing of Cambodia, and then it goes right back up again. So, you know, Nixon tries to fight inflation through impoundment. That drives a lot of members of Congress nuts in both parts of the Democratic coalition, both the sort of old Southern democracy and Northern liberals, because he's killing the pet, the pork projects that they believe are essential to their own reelection, right? And he's doing it by playing underhandedly because the impoundment power couldn't, should not have been used. To restrict appropriations, it was what Nixon was doing was unconstitutional. Obviously, um, the the Cambodia thing, of course, creates massive social disruption, which also makes politicians mad. They don't like they don't like social chaos um, in general. Incumbents are not very happy about that. And then, of course, you have the scandal of Watergate breakover. Um, and and in the background of all of this, you have the Pentagon Papers, which makes people very cynical, not just about the outgoing, the, you know the the Johnson administration, but ironically, a lot of Johnson's perfidy kind of lands in Nixon's lap. And Nixon is not personally politically agile in a way that he would need to have been to kind of judo that and then turn around and, and run as a sort of reformer. Nixon had always been a hatchet. And, you know, that's that's fine. Like, that's a that's a totally, in my look, this is the political professional here, but that's a totally respectable way to be. Um, it just boxes in what you can do in terms of of political rhetoric, right? Um, but what winds up happening is, you know, as Nixon is headed to the dock, so to speak, with impeachment, um, he starts making 
what we might call radically departmentalist arguments, namely that Congress has its sphere of action and power, and the president has his sphere of action and power. They don't overlap, and that the Congress needs to stay away. And then eventually this metastasizes into the argument that, that Congress and the presidency are parallel, equal, co-equal branches of a federal right. government yep. along with the judiciary. You know, Jay and I have beaten this thing to death. I think if you're a listener of this podcast at all, you know that's bullshit. You know why. I won't rehash the reasons why, but it's bullshit. This is where it comes from. Um, the, the, it's not – I mean it's, it's also – I think it's worth bearing in mind too that you know, Nixon was doing some really – between the Cambodia bombing and the impoundment, these are real violations yes. of the Constitution. That, that, yes. Now, whether or not they rise – they in of themselves rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. That's a political question that, you know, was answered effectively back in 1974. But these are like you, the, the Congress has the power of the purse, period. Impoundment for, even for noble purposes, is not a presidential prerogative, you know, for like as a tool of domestic policy, which is what Nixon was doing. Yeah, exactly. It's not okay. Yeah. Um, now, what what happens is that you wind up with this like bizarre institutional Stockholm syndrome, where the Congress kicks Nixon out of power, but only after getting Nixon to replace his crooked Vice President Spiro Agnew with a creature of Congress in Gerald Ford, right, the Republican leader in the House, who's insanely popular in Congress, has served there a long time, lots of friends on both sides of the aisle, in, a, in, by the way, a Republican party in the House of Representatives that is sort of a permanent minority that swings a little bit between the Northern liberals and the Southern, uh, and the Southern democracy in order to, to get their political priorities done, but is not viewed as, as, you know, no one thought Gerald Ford was going to be Speaker of the House anytime soon, right? Um, and so, so they replace Nixon with Ford, and Ford is very interested in restoring a relationship between the presidency and the Congress that is collaborative. And this is the vision that they write these framework statutes around, right? They try to write um, collaborative laws in which information sharing is required, input is required. And again, I'm talking about like the War Powers Resolution, 73, International Economic Emergency Powers Act, which is all, which is 77, you know, the, the FISA. Uh, that's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. That comes out um, from the same period of time. That's 78. Um, and it just, these are all, you know, there's, there are so, the Ethics and Government Act comes out. I think I already mentioned that one. Um, the National Emergencies Act is, it, it, again, 1976, I think. Um, Ford, God, I was, also, I think it's worth, uh, not on a substantive level, but on a symbolic level, Ford actually, as president, testified before the House Judiciary Committee. Yes. About the Nixon pardon. And he gets asked, this is actually an incredible moment when he gets asked, are you committed to the the presidency and the Congress being co-equal branches? And Ford says, as you know, I respect the Congress a great deal. Having served here with you, I I respect the role of Congress as a co-equal branch. And that's the moment where you see the Stockholm syndrome bake in, which is that even though they've kicked out Nixon and replaced him with one of their own, 
they've now convinced themselves that Nixon's self-serving argument about co-equality and radical departmentalism is the way things actually are. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's like being on acid. Yeah. Um, like, <laughs> yeah. when, when you spend your time with these documents. So, and you know, these, these, this continues all through the Ford presidency and then the Carter presidency, right? Like they, they put through the classified information procedures act at the, in like October of 1980. Right. So they're passing these statutes. All of them are designed to force the White House to collaborate with the Congress, to have a, a, a power sharing, a division of labor, um, and all of them fail. All of them fail. The only one arguably that hasn't failed is the Anti-Impoundment Act, but the budget control portion of that has completely failed. And the only sort of institutional creations that come out of this period that haven't failed are the ones that are entirely within Congress that, in other words, sort of reify the division between the branches um, that, that Nixon was pushing for in order to insulate himself and that Congress winds up internalizing like some sort of abused party in, in a like abusive relationship. Um, and, and, and I'm talking about here concretely, you know, the expansion of the Congressional Research Service, the Congressional Budget Office, um, et cetera, right? The, the, these are executive functions properly that Congress builds a parallel office within itself in order to counterbalance the office of management budget and the the, the non-classified parts of of the executive branch. Um, and so you know the, the 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 statutes are trying so desperately to force um, to force the branches together. And instead what they do is they key, they create a bunch of sort of keyword ambiguous keywords around reporting and, and uh, it, you know, operations that allow presidents to avoid um, the sort of political fact of collaboration. And instead, what you see, especially emerging in the Reagan years, is these statutes become tools that presidents in both parties point to and say, oh, well, you see here, I have the power to do this if you interpret these three words this certain way. Right. And um, because presidents, as you know, unitary executives have the, the, the additional advantage of dispatch, right, they can act very quickly and decisively. What the framework statutes wind up doing is empowering the president to act first and throw it in the courts to be adjudicated later. Um, now, that means that the president winds up having a greater, la greater latitude to act initially. Right, which is what Carter didn't understand. Ford and Carter try to work within these systems, and they find them totally frustrating. Um, but even though it gives the president greater latitude to act when you kind of juridify and use legalistic justification um, off of these ostensibly constraining statutes, right, and treat them instead like like empowering acts, um, by not going through the process of new legislation or of, of, of actual collaboration, it means that you wind up with a lot of presidents essentially with their asses out in the air um, because they don't have any congressional allies. So yeah, you can. it makes it so that the presidency can do quick draw a lot faster and Congress has to go to the courts or squeeze things or do investigations or use the oversight function in order to come back around. But it also means that it's very easy for anybody in Congress to say, hey, I wasn't a part of that. And that can include members of the president's own party. And this is, I think, Jay, probably a good time to talk a little bit about the way the coalitions are shifting through the 70s and into the 80s. Yes. And then, we'll, then we'll talk about Reagan and we'll get into to the 90s. 
Yeah, I yeah. So the the coalition, the political coalitions in the eighties are very interesting, and it's a it can be a little deceptive, because if you look at the congressional or excuse me, the presidential elections in 80, 84, 88, it seems that the Republicans are just winning everywhere. Um, which is not exact, which is not exactly true. It's, I mean, it is on a presidential level, it's true. Um, but it, it, there's an important shifts in the Republican coalition during this period where it becomes more Southern. Um, Reagan is, is winning and, and you see a growing number of Southern Republicans, not a large number, but Reagan is doing very well in the South. And I really wanna emphasize this point is that Ronald Reagan wins, overwhelmingly wins in the South against Jimmy Carter, who is himself a Southerner. That is an extraordinary uh, triumph. And it's testimony to the extent to which um, the Southern, white Southerners had just grown tired of the Democratic Party coalition and were not really president. Now, to be, to be sure, um, you know, Reagan's victory in, you know, like rural Alabama, Reagan is going to not do great in rural Alabama, but he does very well in Birmingham. Okay. Um, he loses, obviously goes without saying that he loses uh, Georgia. Carter holds Georgia, you know, but if you look at a state like, you know, South Carolina, for instance, okay. Reagan is not winning, really winning the South Carolina Piedmont, which would be present day. What's that? Greens. What's the name of the, what's the big city in the South uh, Carolina? Uh, Greensburg, Spartan, uh, Spartanburg. Spartanburg. Greensburg. He's not winning Spartansburg. Okay. He's not winning the area out around there, but he is winning, you know, Charleston and he's winning Myrtle, right? These are the sorts of places he wins. He wins Florida. He loses most of, um, the Florida panhandle, but he's winning like Tampa and he's winning Orlando. Um, he's winning Miami Dade, you know, um, you know, similar story with, with Texas as well. Okay. And also like Louisiana. So the ultimately it's not the, like the rural South, the rural white South is still got that kind of old democracy kind of impulse to it. But this is also a period of time, it's important to bear in mind that the old South is really fading away. And you see a rise of, you know, they had talked a hundred years ago, there was this talk of the new South that was going to be industrialized. That had never really panned out. But there it is in the post-war era, there is a growing new South that's built on things like energy extraction, military, tourism as well. Um, especially with the rise of air conditioning, people are migrating into the South where there's less <clears throat> business regulations. So there's incentives for businesses to move into the South as opposed to in the North where you have union regulation, the unionization is larger, all sorts of reasons that people are migrating. Probably to be perfectly honest, the biggest reason for net migration is air conditioning, to be perfectly yeah. blunt. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I'm on vacation right now, and let me see what the temperature here is in North Carolina. My God, it's 88 degrees. I mean, it's just, and it's it's like a swamp outside here. And I'm on the coast. I'm in I'm in um, 
topsail island in north carolina i mean it's but i'm in air conditioning right now for me it's a very comfortable 72 degrees in this room you know i mean that's the sort of thing back in the day the only sorts of people who could handle this were actual you know born and bred southerners um and and so what you see here is the beginning of a shift within the south that is happening very clearly on a presidential level it doesn't really begin to infiltrate on a sub-presidential level right away. But what you see, though, is a lot of these Southern Democrats are aware of how much their voters like Reagan. And so Reagan, for the first uh, couple years of his term, is able to do a kind of a flip that it used to be like with Johnson in 65. Johnson could take enough Northern liberals to overwhelm the Republicans and the Southern Democrats. But in 81, the opposite happens, is that the Southern Democrats and a large and growing Republican coalition in Congress are large enough to enact Reagan's uh, tax cut agenda. And this also corresponds with, and it's a testimony to the rising power of congressional Republicans, is that the Republicans actually win the Senate in the 1980 elections, which is the first time the party had won the Senate since 1952, which is really extraordinary. I mean, we usually think, well, you know, 1994 was the first time in 40 years the Republicans have won the House, which is true. But even, you know, from 1952 to 1980 is a very, very, very long time. Basically, a generation the Democrats had controlled the Senate. And you see, you know, the Republicans beginning to pick off these Southern and Western states that had been sort of components of the New Deal coalition. And what you see then really the rise of the Reagan coalition in 1980 is in many respects the end of the old New Deal coalition. It's breakdown and the sort of um, Carter as a kind of stand-in, a limp kind of New Dealer, or what's left of the New Dealers. But the flip side, though, is you begin to see that, you know, the origins of the new Democratic coalition that's going to emerge in its place, it's going to be more upscale, it's going to be more liberal. Later on, you're, it's going to have more minority voters, but you can see it in 1980 when John Anderson actually wins about 7% of the vote. Anderson had been a moderate Republican from uh, Illinois, and if you look at a lot of the places that Anderson does very well in, they're going to be places that are going to be, you know, today we would see them as being very liberal places indeed. So you begin to see that really the crises of the 1970s, the economic crises, the crisis of confidence in the government, all these things have this remarkable sort of disorienting effect on the political coalitions of both parties. And 1980 ends up being a signal year on a political level and creates for Reagan what is in effect a conservative government in, in the Congress. Probably the first it's not a it's not a trifecta in a party sense, but it's probably it's the first real conservative trifecta that's been in place since you know probably 1926 because Hoover was not all that conservative to be perfectly honest. So this is a real landmark moment in the history of American politics. Now it doesn't last very long because Reagan 
the 82 elections are very hard on the Republicans. Reagan is forced to effectively raise taxes by closing loopholes. His domestic ambitions of cutting spending are thwarted. Um, you know, he, he manages, I think, in well, eight. And, yeah, I mean, look, sure. like, like he cooks the books on the, on the Reagan budget, right? So, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, like, to, yeah. to be perfectly blunt, the OMB sends Congress some pretty hot numbers on the Reagan defense budget, the first Reagan budget. And this is part of the buildup um, and all of that. But <laughs> this will seem so quaint in the year 2021. Um, but essentially, in the 81, uh, the first budget, Reagan sends over budget projections that um, are wildly optimistic about how little things will cost and how, how um, much will get done for it and, so, and, and how it will not affect other aspects of the, of the debt and the deficit. And so Congress goes with OMB's numbers because they've always gone with OMB's numbers, even though they have CBO post Watergate, like they go with OMB's numbers and OMB's numbers are frankly, they're trash. Um, And and I, and the white house knows they're trash. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, all of these people in 81, 82 who are in Congress are obviously they're still in living memory of Watergate, right? That was not, that was, that was eight years ago. Right. Um, And so they are furious. Um, And they, you know, they throw, they essentially throw the brake on the Reagan domestic policy agenda, um, which in a a lot of respects. Sorry, go ahead, Jay. No, that's a very good point. And, And the fact of the matter is, is that Reagan's numbers don't add up. And, you know, only two thirds of Reagan's program are popular. But the third that's unpopular is arguably the most important part. Reagan wants a massive expansion in military spending to to keep up with the Soviets and also to, you know, Reagan is interested in an end to detente in many respects, Um, not wants to return to a warlike posture, but he, unlike, say, Nixon, sees the Soviet Union as not partners in peace, but you know, a real international threat, which is understandable because the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan. Brezhnev is dead. He's been- (laughs) Some things never change. I know, right? Right, yep. You know, Brezhnev is dead and he's been replaced by Andropov, who's a KGB apparatchik, you know? I mean, there's- And who's dying, who's, you know, like on his last legs. Yeah, exactly. It's just that, I mean, Gorbachev doesn't come into the mix until 85. So Reagan wants a massive expansion in military, Terry spending, perfectly defensible at the time. I mean, not saying it's, you know, self-evidently true, but it's perfectly, there's perfectly legitimate arguments. for that. Reagan also wants to draw down the tax burden faced by middle-class Americans. Again, perfectly reasonable. One thing to bear in mind is the tax, you know, in the, through, throughout the seventies, tax rates, rates of taxation were not adjusted for inflation. And so people would be kicking, getting kicked into higher and higher income brackets, even though they weren't really earning any actual more money. It was just paper money that wasn't the per, their purchasing power had been staying the same. And so you and you see this with the tax revolt in California over property taxes, and it's just a consequence of you know progressive taxation and that's not indexed to inflation is going to create a backlash. And so Reagan wants to fix that. The other thing Reagan wants to do is cut domestic discretionary spending and reform entitlements. Both of these things he's basically 
incapable. He's, he's unsuccessful. At. And, you know, the, at least when I was a teenager, they used to say, oh, Reagan cut spending. Yeah, that's, that's sort of, you know, no, not really true. No, not really. <laughs> he cut the, you know, the rate of increase was cut. So if you're using as the baseline a projection of an increase of 6% and it only increases 4%, you know, you can call that a 2% cut, but that's really what we're looking at here. Um, and, and so what, this actually, and I think it's worth, you know, pointing out here that the Reagan's, and I'm a fan of Reagan, you know, I grew up as a kid, Reagan was the president and I admired and respected him and looking back. I, I think that he and George H.W. Bush were the two last really good presidents we had uh, who were actually up to the job of being the commander in chief. But look, his domestic program as implemented doesn't add up. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And it creates these huge budget deficits, which are going to they're going to do a couple things. Um, and I'll, I'll tee this up for you, Luke. The first one thing they're going to do is they're going to fracture the Republican coalition heading into Bush's term. But the other thing they're going to do is they're going to increase and facilitate more conflict between the president and the Congress, especially like to Luke's point, you know, the Reagan budget numbers don't add up and they obviously don't add up. And the result is deficits that end up being much higher than people anticipated. Yeah. And these and it's important to understand that, that the people who in Congress, they, they're scared they're scared to death that inflation might come back. Um, and so you have a kind of, um, how many, I mean, how, how to put this exactly. Like you have people who are fiscally conservative, not, or, or, you know, what we might call fiscally conservative or more concerned about the debt or the deficit, not simply because of an ideological commitment or um, a worry about long-term sustainability. Right. But also because they're really, really worried that if, if inflation comes back, they're going to lose their elections. Right. Because inflation had been this ubiquitous fact of life in the, you know, in the 1970s. And it had, had this innervating effect on, on the, the life and culture of the United States. And so, yeah, when the Reagan deficits come in to be much bigger, there are actually people in Congress who are ready to force and impose on, on the White House, you know, demands that they do, um, you know, demands that they 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 behave more responsibly with their spending. Um, you know, additionally, what happens is Reagan, you know, as he gets more and more constrained domestically. Now he's gotten his budget and he's gotten the defense buildup, and his goal is to go out and you know, shellac the Soviet Union. It's, it's clearly both, you know, highly, it, it's, it's this bizarre gerontocracy of old line apparatchiks, right? Brezhnev is this, is this obese alcoholic who's, you know, conspicuously drunk a lot of the time. It then passes to Andropov, who's this like senile, drooling spy former spy master who you know sort of sat on top of and survived the internecine conflict of the politburo and specifically the kgb and who was himself in his earlier years quite urbane and would have you know had he been the soviet premier instead of brezhnev like the soviet union would have been much better off but by the time he becomes premier having been denied a couple times previously in part because you know the other parts of the soviet 
infrastructure are deeply suspicious of allowing a KGB man to run the show. Um, one can see why, considering, you know, looking into the future. Um, he's just, he's, he's, he's infirm, right? He's, he's on the cusp of death. And so he doesn't last very long. And you wind up, you know, you wind up with the, the, the turmoil of the Soviet leadership class, that small group of people that selected leadership of the Soviet Union, becoming obviously fragmented, right? It was always said, uh, I think it was Churchill who joked that like watching Soviet politics was watching, like watching bulldogs fight under a rug. You know, you can hear the noise, but it's impossible to say who's winning. Um, you know, that, that becomes, it becomes more obvious that like things are not going well in the Soviet Union. These people don't have a lot of power. And Gorbachev, when he comes to power, is not, nobody thinks that he's like a lion who's going to, you know, stand astride history the way, you know, a, a, even a Khrushchev had. Right. Like he's not he's not one of the great figures of Soviet history when he becomes premier. And Reagan and his advisors work very aggressively to overextend the Soviet Union, to drive up the cost of Soviet engagement in Afghanistan, and ultimately with an eye to bankrupting and breaking up the Soviet Union. And they are tremendously successful in doing a lot of this, and they deserve a lot of credit. I think George H.W. Bush, I'll take a moment to editorialize, also deserves a lot of credit for the way he handled the drawdown of the Soviet Union. Yes. Um, he did a very good job collapsing. I probably would not have been as aggressive in moving eastward, but um, with NATO and some other things, but I think on the whole, George H.W. Bush performed very admirably in the, in the kind of breakup of the Soviet Union. In hindsight, it's always 2020. However, um, there are some of the collateral damage from this amb ambitious and ultimately successful policy program shows up in the way in which presidents treat um, Congress. And what Reagan reasserts, in part because he wins these two you know, stonking landslide elections, just big, huge wins, um, he, he asserts a, a, you know, a perspicacious mandate, even though his Congress isn't, you know, he doesn't have a partisan trifecta. And they start to do things that are illegal, that Congress explicitly passes laws to prohibit. The Boland Amendment comes to mind. And, and you know, in Nicaragua, in other parts of Central America, they are aggressively working to provide aid in the form of money and arms and training to anti-communist forces around the world. And Congress gets pretty upset about this for a couple of reasons. One, they don't give permission for a lot of it. Two, there's a very real worry, in, um, in, especially among Northern liberals, that Reagan will trigger escalated, even kinetic continental conflict with the Soviet Union, the strength of which they overestimate. They think the Soviet Union is much stronger than it actually is. And there are war hawks in the, in the Republican fold, too, who feel the same way. The Soviet Union is, is much stronger. Those folks tend to think that the Soviet Union is also evil and thus must be beaten, so they don't always get together. But um, eventually, Reagan's National Security Council gets busted um, selling guns to the Iranians <laughs> in exchange for cash, because, again, Congress hasn't appropriated cash. That they then funnel to the Nicaraguan Contras, who are committing pretty egregious human rights violations as part of their war against the communist forces in it. Um, and, and look, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that the, the communist forces in Nicaragua weren't also committing grievous human rights violations, right? I mean, it is a, it is a horrible, brutal, and savage war. But, you know, 
if you think it's bad for for Nixon, and I think it's bad for Nixon to impound congressional appropriations so that they don't get spent, it's a whole lot worse for the White House to be running an international illegal international gun running ring in order to get you know petty cash that they can hand off to people who set villages on fire. Yeah, and by the way, I was only laughing. I was chuckling just a moment ago. Uh, not at the insignificance of the scheme, but the audacity of it and the real ridiculousness of it is just yeah. And and, and they're not running it out of CIA either. They're running it out of National Security Council, which, by the way, is created in the wake of World War II in order to form a clearinghouse of information from around the executive branch for the White House to act. It's not an operational entity, right? Like right. The, the National Security Council doesn't have a bunch of spies running around, but they wind up with a slush fund because of this scheme. Yeah, this anyway, really reinforces yeah. the um, the idea that Reagan in his second term is, you know, suffering from mental decline because, you know, the only political solution to protect the president is for him to just say, I didn't know this was happening. It was basically happening right under his nose. Yeah, and I think it's an open question whether he knew or to I what agree. extent he knew and what he knew. I don't, I don't know, but I. It, it does I would say like regardless, it it makes him look bad, and it is a legitimate, it is a it is a legitimate mark against his presidency. I would say. Now, if you look at what comes out though, and this is this is where we start to see the first hints of what the of what the next phase or the next two phases of Congress will be. It's sort of, you know, we'll get to Gingrich here in a moment, but um, the the so the majority in Iran Contra. It's really fascinating. The majority report in the Iran-Contra, which is very partisan and, and driven by Democrats, nonetheless is parroting the exact same language and sort of ideological underpinnings and foundations of the framework statute era in the immediate wake of Watergate. Like, it's not just that they think that they're in Watergate 2.0. Like, they just they 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 have they refuse to recognize that their the reforms they implemented then failed. Uh, they refuse to, and and they wind up essentially captured by the Reagan administration's response, which is a, a one-two, where the first step is they say the president didn't know anything about it. He's not implicated in it. And the second part is, even if he did, all of this is completely legal. Let us give you some you know, arcane, elaborate, and, and ultimately disingenuous, but sufficiently facially plausible construction of this statute to justify what we did, as within the law. You know, what, what you would call, what I would call executive legalism, right? Um, and you just – what you see is the minority report on the Iran-Contra committee embraces this form of rationalization and says, yes, it's not about arguing from political necessity or the urgency of stopping the communists in Nicaragua. We're not going to defend it on that basis. We're not going to defend it on the basis of the Soviet threat or anything else. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to say – um, the president has this power always, anytime, and at any place. And uh, Jay, do you know who is the leading spirit in the minority um, membership of the uh, of the House of Representatives and the Iran Contra Committee? Who essentially, with his uh, counsel, writes the minority report? Who? Dick Cheney. <laughs> okay, there you go. Yeah. So, you know, the, you, you get this emergent vision of, of, of a radically separate presidency doing whatever it wants on the world stage that will obviously rear its head and justify what it does again with legalism under the, the George W. Bush administration. 
Um, and look, Obama will take this and run with it whole hog too, and even perversely argue that he's empowered to bomb Libya because of the War Powers Act, which is sort of some chutzpah that you know is is just mind blowing. But I'm going far afield. Well, what, let me just oh, yeah. let me just say as an observation here, one of the challenges that we end up having in congressional presidential relations, and I, I think probably a big reason why the presidency ends up re-emerging as the dominant political player in the relations between the branches in so many respects is that that might symbolized by that minority report, which is, you know, as, as Luke indicated, you know, Obama, Barack Obama has a hyper expansive notion of the presidency and time and time again is very comfortable expanding it at the expense of what is clearly legislative authority. But you don't hear anything from congressional Democrats, just like you don't really hear anything from congressional Republicans against Reagan. Where, but, you know, they start squawking about Obama 30 years later. They're squawking about Clinton's overly expansive, you know, involvement in places like Bosnia. And the challenge ends up being that the president being the iconic American political figure, members of Congress who are of the same party as the president recognize that their fortunes rise or fall depending upon the success of the president. So they have an incentive to support the executive branch, even if, the, even if it diminishes the, the power of the branch that they're act, actually in. And I, I would argue that this power or this it's an it's an incentive structure that is not predicted by Madison in Federalist 51. Madison anticipates that the branches will jealously guard their their power from uh, the other branches but the strong co correlation really since the 1980s of presidential job approval and congressional performance creates this weird situation in which only half of Congress is ever going to be interested in defending its institutional rights against the president. You're not going to, unless the president is so unpopular that he's just, he's, he's going to tip over almost kind of like what happened with Cuomo in New York recently, right? Where Cuomo was just so unpopular and it was so outrageous that state, you know, legislative Democrats who already were tired of this guy um, were just like, okay, we're getting rid of him. You know, when we haven't really seen anything like that happen on a congressional level. So you get this sort of perverse, you know, unanticipated by the founders consequence of Congress actually kind of being enthralled to the president. But it's really due to the fact that the American people vote you know, it's remarkable in so many respects to see even state legislative elections swing based on presidential job approval. County, county sheriffs are doing that. It's it's remarkable it's that vo voters you you know voters are so frankly disengaged from every other layer of government that they use their view of the presidency as a proxy for everything. And so you end up seeing Congress doesn't 
have, insofar as Congress doesn't have a will of its own, it's a large measure because the voters are not exercising any kind of nuanced judgment about whether or not their members are doing a good job or Congress as an institution is doing a good job. It's all a stand-in for how they see the president. Yeah. And so you see a situation in like 1987, Reagan's job approval has fallen to, you know, from like the 60s into the high 40s or low 50s. And rather than Congress coming together as an institution to smack the president down and say, you can't do that. Which, the which Repu- by the way, also, Jay, at that moment, Congress probably had a higher approval rating than Reagan. Right? Yeah. Like, like it's important for people to remember that Congress, I mean, I remember in you know, the year 2000, people bemoaning the fact that Congress's approval rating was in the low 40s. Right? Yeah, it's right. now in the teens yeah. as an institution. And, and so in 80, 87, rather than, you know, come together as an institution and really, you know, smack the president's hand, smack the executive branch's hand, what are the, well, the Republicans are thinking, we got an election and we've got to circle the freaking wagons. You know, that's what they're doing. It's, it's, it's a continuing kind of problem that Congress has where it, you know. Well, and, and they're right, right? I yeah. mean, George H.W. Bush beats the pants off of Dukakis. Yeah, it was a good bet. Yeah, it was a good. And ultimately, it's it's and this is the ironic kind of thing here. And people don't understand this. So they get very frustrated with Congress and they think, oh, Congress doesn't listen. No, you they listen. This is just their inter. This is they listen to what the what the public mood is and they anticipate how the public is going to vote. And this is the action that it produces. The public is so fixated upon the office of the presidency, then Congress is going to, you know, members of Congress are going to have an incentive to keep that at the forefront of their minds and recognize that they don't have a political identity in many, many respects. They do not have a political identity that exists outside of the uh, the presidential office. I think a great example of this, by the way, is um, the congressman from uh, Minnesota. Uh, oh, what was his name? He just recently lost Peterson, right? Yeah. From North- oh, yeah, yeah. From the Iron Range. Right. Peterson. He was the chair of the House Agriculture Committee. He had an incredible, incredible preeminence in his 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 constituents had as a consequence of his seniority and particularly his laser focus on the needs of the iron range they had a spokesman in congress for their interests in a way that very few people actually enjoy and they, they tossed the guy for a freshman republican because they like trump and it's not, I mean, which is just extraordinary to me. And it's just sort of, you know, as members of Congress across the country sort of see this, like, you know, you build up this career and all these things that you can deliver for your constituents. But if you're on the wrong side of, you know, the president, the presidency vis-a-vis your constituents, it doesn't matter. It really perverts the incentive structures that members of Congress have. And I, so I tend to see you know, I think Congress is very dysfunctional. We're going to get into this more later on, but I, I really see the dysfunctionality is ultimately being rooted in the people at large not appreciating 
the unique role that Congress has and keeping Congress um, responsible for its job rather than just blaming or praising, heaping praise upon the presidency. Yeah. And, you know, so what what emerges out of the Reagan years, which is really interesting, is with the collapse of the Soviet Union, right? Um, a lot of what was holding the Republican coalition kind of goes out the window. Um, you know, a lot of the sort of Southern socially conser- down market Southern social conservatives have been voting Republican at the federal level, but not at the state or local level at all. Right. Um, they, they were still electing Democrats um, in Dixie and even to federal office. Um, you know, and you see this in, in some of the Southern states or borderland states that have uh, voter registration. Right. Like, I, I mean, West Virginia still had more registered Democrats than Republicans until last year, right? Republicans finally caught up last year in 2021, even though West Virginia is a deep red state. Um, and that state legislature didn't flip until 2014. Uh, nonetheless, um, you have, with the end of the Cold War, right, the, the cause of Christian anti-communism, which had pushed a lot of evangelicals into the Republican Party, uh, voting at least in terms of presidentially speaking, um, that goes out the window. And Bill Clinton shows up as a Southerner, another yep. Southerner. He wins with a lot of these people's votes. Right? He wins West Virginia, he wins Arkansas. I think he does. I think he even wins Louisiana, doesn't he? Yes, he does. He wins yeah. the entire border south. He wins Arkansas, Louisiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia. Yeah, and which is nuts, right? Yeah. Um, to think about. And you know, he comes into office on what looks like kind of a reconstitution of the of the Great Society. You know, Lyndon Johnson, um, 1964 um, coalition, even though he doesn't win a majority and is, is you know, it, it's impossible to say whether he would have won absent Ross Perot in the race. But, you know, it looks like you can sort of squint at Clinton's minority victory and say, OK, you know, we're getting the band back together yep. as a Democratic Party. Right. Um, and he comes into office and he tries to assert a sort of reagan-esque presidency uh with really big ambitious claim you know plans around health care around gay rights around a bunch of other things gun control gun control oh yeah god i forgot about gun control and it just i mean it blows up in his face it really does um and this and what's interesting is you have for this first moment and then sorry jay i'll hand it off to you no 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 sure you, you have what looks like in 1994 and the Republican wave, Gingrich riding into the speakership on an explicit contract with America ideological program, almost like a parliamentary leader in opposition to the, to the president, right? Which is, hasn't really been done before. It's ingenious. It's very creative. It, like like as, a, as a political entrepreneur, Gingrich deserves a sh- just a ton of credit, right? Um, but he goes and he does this and it looks like Congress is reasserting its, itself, and Congress is reasserting itself in what looks like a post-framework statute psychology, right? Like, like, oh, we're reasserting ourselves as a political force. And in fact, it kind of works that way during the, the Mexican debt crisis. You know, uh, Gingrich and Clinton are like hanging out in the basement of the White House eating fried chicken and figuring out how to use the circulating fund to bail out the peso together. Right, because they're they're not doing this sort of we're going to pass some reform that creates new systems and structures. Right, they're they're political opponents rather than working through some highly statute driven process. But then, you know, the the um, Whitewater leading into Lewin- the, the the scandal with you know the Lewinsky sexual misconduct scandal 
blows up what appears to be a, a reassertion of Congress's prerogatives and sort of exposes it as another step in the emerging period of negative polarization um, that I think it's safe to say like 9-11, specifically the Iraq war, just dumped fuel on. But sorry, Jay, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, not at all. No, I, I agree. I think that's very astute. I think the only thing I would add politically is bearing my because sort of keeping up with the party coalitions. 94 happens in many respects because, um, I mean, there's a lot of reasons 94 happened. 94 had kind of been a long time coming. Probably a good indication of that was that the Republicans had actually picked up House seats in 92, which is really extraordinary. And weird reasons for this. It's not just the shift in um, in the attitude of Southern whites, which is really where you begin, really where 94 happens, is the Republicans win a majority of the vote in the South, which is itself extraordinary. Um, and they also win, I think it's close to a majority in the North, but I'm not sure. Um, but you also see it's not just that the Republicans are picking up Southern whites who are, you know, disaffected Democrats, but you also see the consequences of the uh, the census and the redrawing of district lines and the, the implications of the 1982 amendments to the Voting Rights Act. Mm. The 82 amendments. So originally, the Voting Rights Act was that any kind of ch changes to uh, uh, voting rules, systems, regulations, procedures that have the intent of discrimination are illegal. And moreover, what gave the Voting Rights Act real teeth was that these certain targeted places, if they um, if they have a history of discrimination, they have to go and get what was known as pre-clearance. You have to go up to the Justice Department or the D.C. Circuit and say, we want to do this. Can we do it? And if they, they say no, then they can't do it. Um, so basically local authority over, uh, you know, places that had historically localities that had historically abused the uh, uh, franchise had, had, their, had essentially disenfranchised black. Yeah. The, in places that were known to have done that have their local authority stripped away. Well, the 82 amendments not just they don't, they don't just expand the scope of protection from African Americans, also to Latinos. And I also think Native Americans, but I'm not sure about that. But the other thing they do is this is really significant. It's just not just intent to discriminate, but intent or effect to discriminate. Okay, so it doesn't even matter whatever your motives are. If it has the effect of diminishing the political power of certain protected minority groups, then, th then it can't be done. And so this has the effect of forcing or, well, I'll say the Justice Department under the George Bush administration interprets this as saying that districts where you can, or states where um, you can draw reasonably compact minority districts, minority majority districts have to be drawn. So Black political power has to be concentrated in such a level so that uh, actually the actual member of Congress elected in these districts are actually African American. And, and to be clear, they're collaborating with the Congressional Black Caucus. And, oh yes, yeah, this Well, is there's not, two. This is there's, not like, right. There's two big winners in this in this outcome. The first is the Congressional Black Caucus, which expands dramatically, and the second is Republicans in the South, because what this has the effect of doing is so-called bleaching of congressional districts in the South, where you might have a district that's like thirty percent black, and if you're a Democrat, 
if you're a white Democrat, you get your third because blacks are loyal to the Democratic Party. African Americans are strongly Democratic, so you get 30 percent in your pocket, and you only need to get like 40 percent of the remaining 70 to win election. Well, now we get a situation in which that 30% has maybe been reduced to like 10% because it's been reorganized into a minority majority district. And you as a white Democrat don't can't scrounge the votes. And so if you, what ends if you up- want to know, if you want to know what it looked like before these amendments, um, before the 82 amendments, like just look at my home state of Maryland, where Maryland's congressional um uh, delegation is far more democratic than it should be based on the vote in the state, right? Republicans are really underrepresented, but also the Democrats that, that Maryland sends to Congress are like old white guys or their children. Um, we do not have nearly enough black Democrats in Maryland because the Maryland legislature gerrymanders to protect white ethnic Democrat um, incumbents, uh, as opposed to younger black, generally more left-wing candidates. Right. And so what you get then is, I mean, you can see this in various places. You know, a good example would probably be the state of Mississippi, is that if Mississippi was, you know, divided in without the 82 amendments to the VRA, you'd probably have, you know, I think Mississippi has what, four congressional districts? Yeah, it's got it's got four and it's 40 percent black. So you probably have two moderate Democrats and two moderate to conservative Republicans. You'd have two safe red seats, one safe blue seat, and then you'd have a swing seat. So sometime, whereas now it's one safe blue seat, super safe blue seat, and three safe, safe red seats. Right. And so what you get then is instead of having, you know, a more moderate state caucus, Mississippi now has three diehard conservatives and Benny Thompson, who is a diehard liberal. Right. So this ends up having an effect on polarization within Congress. It solidifies the Republican uh, political base to a really extraordinary extent in the sense. I mean, you can really sort of appreciate this it, even in sort of like after the disaster of the the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, the Republican numbers in Congress, really, I think they only bought them out at like 190. 190 right. seats, which is actually better than what they had been for this the since the, the, the 60s, the 70s, and and a part of the 80s as well, even. So it's you know, it creates it. I, I don't want to say it creates, it doesn't do it out of whole cloth, but it reinforces the shifting demographics, the political demographics of the South, um, where you know the southern whites who had long been voting Republican on a presidential level are now voting on a sub-presidential level, they're voting Republican. And what's happening as as a consequence is that these districts are flipping. And this is really where you see um, all of these events really come together in 1994. So I think I kind of, so we've been going a little over an hour now. And I think, so Luke sort of hinted at the the post-94, the Clinton Congress stuff. I, I think maybe we should call an end to today's episode. And so, Next week, we can really dive into the kind of fractious political fights that we've seen recently between the president and Congress that are really, um, I think, a large measure consequence of the ideological polarization in Congress. And the fact of the matter is, is that a unitary executive means it's either a D or an R who's holding a presidential office. And so one side of Congress has virtually no incentive to compromise now in large measure because of this polarization. Yeah. 
I think it's, I think that's a good place to do it because after all, I mean, just to give people a, a sense of it, right. Um, you know, before the 1990s, really only two American presidents had faced the realistic prospect of impeachment. And we've had three impeachments since then. Yeah. Um, and you it's might extraordinary. Think, you might think that that was congressional reassertion uh, or, you know, a country coming apart at the seams. And I know many people talk that way, but like political violence is really not that common. It's, it's near, uh, I mean, it's, it's still near its low point in American history. Um, and none of those presidents has managed to be removed other than Nixon who resigned. And frankly, had he refused to resign, he probably would have gotten removed. We can't say yeah. for sure. And deserve to be too. Let's be honest. Yeah. Let's, I mean, so, let's be honest. He had to go. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So well, I think that's a great thing. So we'll do the, the contemporary era that most people will remember in you know, the nineties, two thousands. Um, and now the, the tens and twenties, I guess. Well, so yeah, the 21st century really. Yeah. And I, and I, um, and I would just sort of, to sort of, you know, where Luke and I are both coming from, it's just not a dissatisfaction, lack of dissatisfaction about contemporary politics. I mean, there's an enormous amount of things to be dissatisfied about. But I, I think, and I, I think our hope is, is that as we've sort of gone through this series, that you'll appreciate, you, the listener, will appreciate that, you know, the phenomena of politics in a given time have a lot of deep-rooted institutional features that are causing them. Like what you're actually seeing is oftentimes just a, it's a, it's a symptom of underlying things. And, and I think that a lot of times in the moment, you know, in the 1970s, there was this, there's put maybe say more broadly in the moment, there is an, uh, an impulse to identify unhappy political phenomena as some sort of, like, as Luke says, coming apart at the seams. So in the 1970s, for instance, there was this kind of attitude, oh, that the presidency is, is too big to actually, you know, the, we're, we're entering a world where the office of the presidency is too big for any one person to do. And this, there's all sorts of kind of moralistic, almost spiritual kinds of interpretations of political phenomena, which when you look back in retrospect, you say, oh, well, okay, it's actually a consequence of these different factors that were working together. And then as those factors shifted, the phenomena that we observe shifted as well. And I think that's something in Luke had illustrated a moment, you know, a moment ago, especially with respect to impeachment and this kind of hyper-partisanship in Congress, you know, there's a tendency among political pundits today to interpret these kinds of problems, and I think they are problems, as moral failings of either leaders or voters or both. And I think in some respects that's true. You know, I was being critical of voters for not having a nuanced view of Congress a moment ago. But I also think you need, when you're analyzing politics or any time, you have to approach it with a level of dispassion and understanding. People are tend to be operating out of their own calculations of self-interest. And so the institutional and political factors that shape those calculations are going to be, you know, not observed directly, but they're going to be under the surface. And I so hopefully that has become apparent as we've gone through the historical Congress. 
emphasizing certain hist historical features and stuff. And so next week, when we look at Congress today, really want to emphasize that when Luke and I approach it, it's going to be much more from an institutional arrangement kind of thing and much less, you know, oh, the country's falling apart. So hopefully next week, it'll be some cool temperate analysis of, you know, what are admittedly very troubled times, but not, you know, light your hair on fire and say, oh, this is the worst things have ever been, which is really just nonsense, I think. I agree. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. And we will speak to you next week. Thank <laughs> you.